Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. All right. Well, that was a fun scripture reading, was it not? So there are seven churches in uh, the book of Revelation that John hears a prophetic word from Jesus about. And we are going to do six of them. So just trust me when I say this is the one I wanted to skip. All right. Um, no one wants to preach on, uh, on this passage. and It's not an easy one. But I think it's important, so I decided that we would, we would jump into it regardless, and so um, I think it, it will be a good opportunity for us to understand what is being said. Now, first of all, I think just an introduction for those of you that maybe haven't been here in previous weeks or haven't caught up with us on this series, uh, I want to remind you that this is a, a, an apocalyptic literature, like a, a word from Jesus, a, Jesus, a vision from Jesus given to the Apostle John while he is exiled on the island of Patmos. And he receives these words about these churches, and he is telling us essentially uh, what they are doing well, an encouragement, um, their rebuke, kind of what they can do better, and then there's typically um, a promise at the end. And if they are faithful to the end, this is what they will receive. This is kind of the common pattern that we see throughout all seven churches. And you may ask, why are we studying these seven churches? I just want to remind you the reason why. Is that um, oftentimes uh, we, we can get off track about what's the things that, that matter to God. We can think about the things that matter to us or maybe what our context or culture would tell us are important for the church to be about. And this is a way for us to understand more deeply what God cares about and what we should care about. The things that we maybe are doing correctly and the things that we need to change in light of that. And so I really believe this is a, a cultural moment for our church to really understand more deeply what God would have us as a church be. Sound good? All right. Let's talk about Thyatira. They, are the mo- they have said to be the least important church of the seven. How would you like that to be known? <laughs> the least important of the seven cities, at least. They're 40 miles from Pergamum on the road to Sardis. Uh, they're not as prosperous or as powerful or as influential as some of the other churches and cities that we've talked about in the past. But it still is a prosperous city. They had a lot of natural resources that helped with trade. And they receive the strongest rebuke of any of the churches, as you heard Hannah read before. So let's pray. God, we invite you even even now through the strong rebuke of this church to maybe see in our own lives and in our church's lives the ways in which we've compromised our faith and the way in which we have kind of syncretized what we believe to our cultural context uh, in an unhealthy way. And would you challenge us to see the ways in which we've allowed false teaching and um, uh, lies from, from Satan to infiltrate our community and to, to continue to root out falsehood so that we will know the truth. Uh, we trust, uh, Jesus, that you are with us, that you are for us, and that, um, that you will guide our steps in that process. Thank you for this chance to be here this morning to worship you and to praise your name. You are worthy of all of it. Amen. 
So I want to ask you a question, and it's a question that I, I think that it's a really important question. It's one that if we don't ask, we may have a hard time understanding the Scriptures, understanding what God is all about and who God is. Have you ever considered that what we think of as normal could actually be extremely offensive and considered horribly sinful by God? I guess my question is, do you think that what we see as evil is the same thing that God considers evil? And maybe in the same way, there, but maybe not quite as strong, is have you considered that what everyone around us might say is offensive and sinful might actually not be that offensive and sinful in God's eyes? I don't have anything necessarily in particular in mind beyond what's kind of presented before us in this passage. I think the way that we often define sin is this. Did I hurt someone else? Right? And I would say that's probably true, right? In the most cases, if we steal or lie or harm someone else, we are hurting them and that is most likely sinful. But God doesn't just care about what we consider as harmful to another person. He might also consider, and maybe some of us are advanced enough in our understanding of sin, to say that there are things that we could do that wouldn't hurt anyone else in this room or anyone else in our neighborhood or anyone else in our city, but that could hurt us, right? That could actually be detrimental to us. But I think that God might even go further and to say that there are things that are sinful that don't hurt anyone else in this room or anyone else in this neighborhood or anyone else in the city and may not even hurt you, initially at least, but that God would see as evil. And what's hard for us to grasp is that probably the primary sin that God is angry against in the scriptures is twofold. One is injustice, and the second is idolatry. Idolatry. And this is really hard for us, I think. Maybe it's not for you, but it is for me. Because when I think of idolatry, I think of the golden calf from Exodus. And I say, well, certainly I'm not bowing down to a calf. Or we might think of a, a, a statue of a king that's erected in Babylon. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you know that story, refused to bow down to. Well, certainly if someone told me to worship a statue, I would say no. But idolatry is much more significant than just that. Idolatry is, is putting anything at the level of allegiance to that we have God, uh, at the same level as we have God. It's syncretizing and putting other things, other gods, other, other paths, other things at the same level as the one true God. And so when we read this passage and we hear about them eating food sacrificed to idols, we have to dig deeper to understand that we worship things that are other than God all the time. 
And that God might still call us idolatrous, even though we don't bow down to any calves. And Thyatira, as I mentioned before, they were a pretty significant uh, community of prosperity. Uh, they had a lot of commodities, including bronze and silver. Uh, they also had dyes, which was a very, very in, important uh, thing in that time period. So they had this really rich minimal, mineral water that uh, no other place in the world could make as, as beautiful of a red uh, dye as they could in Thyatira. I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. Because you could trade that. You could make significant money off of the color red. We actually read about other uh, people in the Bible, including Lydia in Acts 16, I believe it is, where she is uh, a patron of the church at Philippi. And it says that she is from Thyatira and she trades purple, essentially. And purple was uh, a royal color. It was a significant thing in that time period that, that she would have access to. And so you can imagine that these sorts of uh, businesses, whether it be bronze or silver or dyes and, or other things, were very significant to the well-being of the community. And so the entire structure of Thyatira was built around what they would call guilds. And you may not know the term guild. I didn't really know that term. I had to, at least, I had to look it up. It's kind of... Uh, like a labor union, or and, and combine that with a social club, and combine that with a church. Maybe combine that with like a, cr a crime family, and you have everything like that covered that, that you can imagine as being part of a guild. And so the bronze smiths and the silversmiths and the uh, the people that that uh, made different dye and textiles, like they would be their own guild. And these guilds were at the center, at the heart of social functions, of religious functions, as well as business in the community. And so you'd go to the town square, and they'd all have a different section that they would meet. And it was like, essentially, your community. They were your protection from, uh, you know, like I said, like a labor union would, so you'd get paid correctly. They gave you work. Uh, all you had to do is stay committed to the values of that guild. And every guild would have a particular god or goddess that they would worship. They'd have daily work quotas. They'd have monthly meetings. They'd have rules for personal life. They'd have rules for religious life. And they'd have a God that essentially they would, they would worship and hold festivals and, and praise and worship and eat um, food that was sacrificed to them in order for them to continue to receive prosperity from these gods and goddesses. And they had incredible sway over your business. And in particular, the God that the this community had over itself was called Apollo. Maybe some of you have heard of Apollo, uh, not necessarily from the Bible, but from uh, Greek writings or other things that you learned throughout high school or college or other times. Apollo was the son of Zeus, which many people have heard of. And Apollo's name, who was the sun god, his name was the son of God. That's what people would call him. And so there was incredible pressure, you can imagine, you can put two and two together here, for Christians in this community, how do you can have a job, how do you make a living, 
How do you have a social life? How do you have fun? How do you have, you know, worship the one true God? And when they're asking you to do things that are outside of what you believe are right and good and true. If they refuse to participate in these guilds, they would lose both the goodwill of their, uh, their friends and community and neighbors and their business. You would be kicked out. You would lose your job. You'd lose your income. You'd lose your social standing. You'd lose your friends. You'd lose your, your whole community and you'd lose fun. <laughs> I'm going to say that again because I think that in our context, maybe the fun part's the most significant one. You got to give up the fun. You can feel this tension, can't you? Can you imagine being in that context? To participate in this idolatrous life. It was really significant. And I don't think that we can read this passage without understanding how significant of a pull that would be. You are essentially committing to a life of poverty, a loss of community, being ostracized from those people all around you, and your social life. Jesus writes a letter to this church and does not mess around (laughs) confronting the idolatrous nature of this church. And the first verse, verse 18, says this. These are the words, listen to it, of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Only here, in all the seven letters, is the phrase Son of God used. What do you think Jesus is trying to say with that first statement? He is confronting Apollo. (laughs) It may not seem like that big of a deal, but you know how you put someone on blast right now? Like (laughs) Jesus is putting Apollo on blast, right? He's saying, I am the true Son of God. I have all authority I have all power. I have all provision. And he's making a claim to be the one true son of God. And this title denotes majesty and divinity. It's used often in the gospel of John, not ironically. And in this situation, in the only way that you could, I think, step away from these guilds, these things that would provide protection and income and, 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 and life and community and, and fun would be to know that you are going to worship the one true God, the true Son of God, and that Apollo has no power over your life, has no ability to dictate what will come in your way, that he is powerless And so there is an expectation, even in this first statement, to stop giving allegiance. Stop giving worship to Apollo because Apollo does not reign. Stop trusting Apollo. He is powerless. The second part of verse B I just read, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, this, this imagery uh, is not something that we would naturally understand, but I told you that one of the major businesses was, was, uh, was dealing with bronze, right? So it's unsurprising that John took words from Daniel in order for 
to give allusion to the fact that he has power over the guild, over whatever it would be the bronze. He, he went attacked, over, like kind of like put on blast the guilds. So sometimes when we read scripture, we don't see all these connections and see all the things that are in these statements that are significant and important. And then the last is the eyes like raging fire. And this is supposed to be an imagery that Jesus sees it all. Jesus sees the intent of people's hearts, that he has insight and understanding and a vision that, that others cannot see. That Jesus sees what's right and wrong, what people have done that's good and bad. And that he is aware of every aspect of the situation. Going on, Jesus actually does spend some time encouraging them. And he encourages them in significant ways. So let's read verse 19. He says, I know your deeds. I love your faith, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's significant. So in the midst of all of this pressure, in the midst of other problems that they're dealing with, they are a loving church, that they are loving God, and and I assume that they are loving their neighbors well. That's just the primary characteristic, characteristic of people that would call themselves children of God. That they have been faithful, that they are serving other people, that they are persevering. But I do want to make this statement here because I think it's important. It seems that you can love Jesus and love your neighbor, but you can still be far off. You can still be living in significant sin. And that the object of our worship and our allegiance to God is vital in saying our statement that we love God. Yahweh as I said over and over and over in the Old Testament, and I think it makes abundantly clear here in this passage, that Yahweh is a jealous God. And he goes on to explain what they've done and how and why he's writing such a strong rebuke of this church that in a lot of ways is doing really well. And the rebuke is this, that you have tolerated this woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Notice that. This is a little bit different than the church of Pergamum who uh, had false teachers. Here it's saying this church tolerated, meaning like they allowed it. They we're kind of okay with it. They were saying this is one of the options, kind of, that you can have. And I think that some people might take this verse and, and, and kind of rail against tolerance in our, in our, like in our world, right? Oh, like we shouldn't be as tolerant as we are. And I, I actually disagree with that, and I don't think that's what this is saying. We actually should be tolerant of people that believe things that are different than us. That doesn't mean that we're saying it's equally true or equally, you know, whatever. We're just saying we're going to be kind to these people. We're going to understand that people think differently than we think about things. The tolerance problem is in the church. It's people that claim to be followers of Jesus but are leading people astray. That's the tolerance that that, that Jesus has a problem with. 
So who is Jezebel? Well, we know this, that uh, most likely no one was naming their daughter Jezebel after uh, Jezebel happened in the Old Testament, okay? So this is a nickname for whoever this woman is in this church. And Je- Jesus is calling her Jezebel. And if you remember, uh, if, you've, if you've been part of church for a while, and if you don't, that's totally fine. I'm going to explain it. But Jezebel uh, is an Old Testament figure that is significantly evil. She was the wife of King Ahab, who is considered the most wicked king in Israel's history, most possibly, right? And she introduced, listen to this, idolatry. She introduced the idol of Baal, the god of Baal, to the Israelite people. And she had 900 prophets underneath her. And she led people into the participation of immoral, uh, immoral sexual acts and the worshiping of Baal. So this is not surprising that this woman, whoever she is, is being called Jezebel because God sees her as leading people astray into idolatry in the same way that Queen Jezebel did in the Old Testament. Most likely, we don't know exactly what she taught. So this is a little bit of guessing in light of the context and everything else around the passage. But most likely, she taught that there was nothing wrong with the Christian taking part in the guild feasts and celebrations. That this was simply a civil act of duty. Part of being a citizen of the city and part of being a citizen of Rome. I might say very carefully here, be very careful who you pledge your allegiance to. Be very careful who you salute. Be very careful how your civic actions might be perceived as normal as being part of Chicago or America that are much more like worshiping Apollo than we realize. The second thing that she might have been teaching, again, this is a little bit of speculation, is that there is uh, some sort of scriptures that you could pull from Paul and pull from other sources and say, well, idols have no power. So who cares if you go and eat food sacrificed to idols? Because Idols have, they, they are idols. They are not true. They are not right. Like, they're, you know, they're, they're, they don't exist. The God of these idols. So therefore, this food has no stain on it, has no problem. And, and so she may have been saying, since idols are nothing, Christians would not destroy their faith by participating. See how this is kind of like a, a conniving way to get around and just being able to do whatever you wanted to do. The third thing that's talked about in the passage is Satan's deep secrets. Again, we don't exactly know for sure what Satan's deep secrets mean to Jesus when he's uh, proclaiming this to John, but most people are drawing from kind of other terms, people that have used that term in extra-biblical literature and other times, and it may be a, a, a reference to how to understand grace, and this is, this is the way it often goes, is in order to understand the depth of grace, we must understand the, the depths of evil first. So you must be as evil and enter into the most evil thing so therefore you can be saved and understand the, the, the depth and the greatness of God and his grace for you. 
Gnosticism kind of approaches faith a little bit this way and says that your body is separate from your spirit. So whatever your body's doing doesn't really matter. So you can enter into this like stronghold of Satan that could earn the limits of his power and emerge victorious. And so you should actually go into these spaces and to go in these things so that you can have victory over sin and understand the depth of God's grace and love. It seems... Ridiculous, kind of, when you think about it. But I know lots of people that say, well, I have to experience this first for myself, right? When it comes to sin. We used to do youth ministry, and that was a common phrase from the youth. Well, I just have to make my own mistakes. No, trust me, you don't. (laughs) In order to understand the love of God, you don't have to, like, I can tell you. The reply to the, uh, the Satan's deep secrets is kind of mockingly said in this passage is emphatic. She deceives you and is leading you into idolatry, into immorality. She has been given plenty of time to repent, and she is not. And there seems to be this indication that anyone else that's kind of caught up in this that's living the sexually immoral, this very um, idolatrous life, has an opportunity right now to turn from that lifestyle and follow Jesus once again. Follow the true Son of God. But it needs to happen fast. And this idea of, it it can sound very harsh about the children. Uh, Every single a commentary that I read indicates that it's not talking about her actual children. It's talking about her disciples, the people that she's leading into. These are adults that are choosing to follow Jezebel. These are her children. These are her disciples. These are the people that will be judged if they do not turn away from their idolatrous acts. See, this is what I'm talking about when I ask those first questions. Is Who is this hurting? It's not hurting anybody else. Is not really hurting them. This is an affront. Idolatry is an affront to God. And so Jesus says to those of you that are not caught up in this but are just tolerating this in your church, he says the command is, the first thing is just like hold fast. Don't give in. Don't let Jezebel muck this up. You have been loving better. You have been serving. You have been faithful. You are persevering. And if you do these things, and if you hold fast to those truths, if you hold fast to what I'm calling you to do, no matter the cost of what it will cost you in your business or in your life or whatever else, Jesus makes two promises to them. You will reign with authority over the nations. What? (laughs) You may say, well, what does that mean? That's a big promise, right? You will rule with authority. You will reign with authority over the nations. Uh, This is a small and insignificant, in many ways, weak church. And they will be given an iron scepter, it says. And with the Father will judge the nations. And I think what... This, this, this picture, the person that, uh, that rules with the iron scepter is this. Imagine this. If they choose to follow Jesus instead of the guilds around them, 
if they choose to follow Jesus instead of living in idolatry, they will be oppressed. They will most likely be forsaken, right? They will most likely be removed from their careers, social standing, fun. And essentially, when you rule with the iron scepter, the way that language works out throughout the scriptures is this idea of bringing justice to oppressors, to bring justice to those that are, are not following the one true God. And so essentially what they're saying is even though you will face oppression and you will face hardship and you will face a, a, a casting off of swords, you will rule and reign and you will be able to bring justice to those that have harmed you. The second promise is I will give you the bright and morning star. Again, language that we are not super familiar with. But in Revelation 21, Jesus is called the bright and morning star. So maybe what he's saying here is, I will give you myself. Where I am, there you might also be. This is the idea of eternal fellowship with the Son of God. I don't know about you, but that's something to persevere for. <laughs> so this challenge here is very hard. And it's really hard for me to, to kind of try to make... Um, culturally relevant examples of this. Because what I think often happens is this. If I were to say, okay, and maybe I will do this in a minute, but do you worship God or the U.S. dollar? Those people that are poor will say, well, that's not me. I'm poor. I don't have anything. So like, and then you start thinking of yourself as like, well, this isn't about me. This is like, I'm, those people are in trouble, Right. Or you can make another example. And you kind of like, I think what happens sometimes is when pastors give like really, really significant, like detailed examples of this, it's just like, well, if I'm not in that sphere, if I'm not in that world, then I'm free of any of this. And what I'd like you to do is consider what is Jesus worth to you? Would you value your job or your career or the economy more than Jesus? Would you value your social circle, your friends, your fun more than Him? In this situation, and in many others that we face, the following Jesus is a, is a significant cost. And for this church, at Thyatira, it was a little bit black and white. You either remove yourself from the idolatry and the mistaken theology Or you will face judgment. And there are, for many people, that's a real question. And maybe it's a real question for many people in this room, but they've never asked it. <laughs> they've just assumed that whatever they have to do to get their boss's approval or to get the next step up is okay. What do we need to do we need to reject, or what have we compromised in our lives? How have we allowed the syncretism of our culture, when it comes to religion, fail to give our, keep us from giving our full allegiance to Jesus? And I think some of us probably this morning need to heed this warning that Jesus gives Jezebel and his followers. Maybe Jesus would say to you, "You simply cannot participate in that job and keep your moral character, and you need to, to move out of it." 
or you can't go to that social event or you can't be in that sphere because the demands of what you have to do and who you have to become are you're not willing to step into. Maybe you have to uh, not be the best employee and push back on the bottom line because you're unwilling to cut corners the way that your boss or those even higher than your boss are asking you to do. I can't answer those questions. But I think it's worth honestly asking these questions because Jesus is declaring that he's worth more than your job. He's worth more than your wealth. He's worth more than even your friendships. And he's worth more than your fun. Uh, I don't know. Has anyone ever worked retail here? Or maybe you work retail now. I worked retail for a while. Um, and have you ever, I don't know, like if you're working the register, oftentimes up front they'll have like a giveaway that's really cheap. They call it a loss, like the term is a loss leader. Uh, it's basically you put something up front, you're saying, we're going to have this giveaway uh, or we're going to sell this thing, this shirt for $2. And if you come, you'll get you know, the shirt for $2. The reason that businesses do that is that they're gonna, they know they're going to take a loss initially. But they're going to get you in the store. And almost guaranteed that you're going to buy other things than just that one thing. Some of you might have the discipline just to buy the one thing. I do not. I started looking, oh, that looks nice, that looks good. And then they got you, right? They made a, a huge profit on all the other things that you bought, but you got the loss, the loss leader, you got the thing that got you in the store. Maybe this is a little bit like this. You take the loss initially, but you receive incredible rewards for following Jesus. This is like the parable that Jesus told. This reminded me of this. The kingdom of God is like the man who found a treasure in a field. And when he found it, he sold everything he had to go buy that field. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.